I'm having less and less interest in any philosophy <laughs> or any kind of description of consciousness or any of those things. And I have a great interest in just the meetings of the heart. Awareness, the final frontier. These are the explorations of Jonathan Robinson and Brian Tom O'Connor. Their continuing mission to discover fresh new paths to the mystery within, to seek out new joys and new methods of awakening, to boldly go into the heart of expanded consciousness. This is Awareness Explorers. Welcome, friends and family, to another episode of Awareness Explorers. I'm your co-host, Jonathan Robinson, and I'm with my trusty friend and co-host, Brian Tom O'Connor. And it's exciting whenever we have a guest, uh, and today we have a guest, Catherine Ingram, who I will give her bio in just a moment. Um, I've heard a lot of good things about Catherine, but uh, how are you doing in New York there, Brian? Oh, I'm doing great. It's lovely summer weather here in New York, which is you know, sometimes beautiful, sometimes not, but either way, I enjoy it. Uh-huh. I'm in a uh, hotel. That's why it's a little bit dark on my screen, but been on vacation and having a great time. But let's get to it because um, the little I know about Catherine, you know a lot more about her, Brian, uh, but the little I know is very intriguing. We have some interesting similarities that uh, I'm sure will come up. But um, let me go a little bit into Catherine's bio. Catherine is an international Dharma teacher with communities in the U.S. and Europe. Since 1992, she has led Dharma Dialogues, which are public events that encourage the intelligent use of awareness within one's personal life and in one's community. She is the author of two books of nonfiction, which are published in many languages, one of them is In the Footsteps of Gandhi, Conversations with Spiritual Social Activists. Another one is Passionate Presence, Seven Qualities of Awakened Awareness, and one novel called A Crack in Everything. I assume that probably comes from the Leonard Cohen lyric, but we'll get to that. And she's published a long-form essay called Facing Extinction, which uh, got over a million downloads. And that's a little bit of bio of Catherine, but most of what we'll learn about Catherine comes from Brian and I interrogating her and finding out uh, her very interesting life. Welcome to Awareness Explorers, Catherine. Thank you so much. Since uh, Brian knows more about you than I, I did notice that back in 1990, uh, with your book in the footsteps of Gandhi, you interviewed a lot of spiritual leaders. And I did a book like that back in 1994, called The Experience of God, in which we interviewed a lot of the same people. And I I have a revenge question. People would always ask me, what was it like interviewing all those people? And of course, it's huge to be able, you know, what do you say? But uh, I thought if I ever get an opportunity to ask somebody who's done a similar thing, I want to hear what their answer. What was it like interviewing all these great leaders? Well, the book actually which only had 12 interviews, Uh um, a distillation of a lot of years of of being interested in matters of what you could call empathic activism. So I had interviewed about 100 people for publication in magazines Mm -hmm. and 
I thought to do this book. And then I interviewed some of those same people again, only chose 12 for the book. And then I added a few that I had never interviewed. So uh, the reason I went on that journey was that um, I didn't go to college and I decided to just create my own curriculum. So it was my way of educating myself about things that mattered to me and about my burning questions having to do with, I had been a young Buddhist practitioner in those days and into meditation mm-hmm. and so on. And it came to a point where I thought, well, this is all well and good for us who are, you know, spending time in these silent, beautiful places and, you know, in Dharma communities, gentle folk. But, you know, I looked around at the world and thought, you know, the place is a mess. <laughs> is there anyone out there who's addressing the social and environmental and the political issues from a dharmic perspective? And mm-hmm. so that led me to this whole focus and, uh, you know, on, on, like I said, empathic activism and interviewing people who I admired in, in those fields. And mm-hmm. so I was just very lucky to, you know, the only reason I actually became a journalist per se is that I I knew I had no access to these people to go and spend deep time with them right uh, unless I was going to publish them so you know so I <laughs> I kind of backed into it the actual writing of the transcribing which in those days had to be done with a computer and a foot pedal stopping and typing on a on a you know an IBM you know, correcting typewriter, but still backspacing and whiting out on the thing. It was just took forever. <laughs> we, we, share, all... we share a similar pain that way. Yes, exactly. I remember that well. Right. So yeah. that part I never particularly enjoyed. I really loved the interview part, you know, yeah. getting to hang out with the, with the great ones. And so, yeah, that's, that's how it was for me. Um, it was an education, and I mm-hmm. appreciated each and every one of them. And the people I interviewed. Now, I know in your TED Talk, you talk a lot about how to handle all the suffering in the world in a way that doesn't uh, uh, destroy your own life. And was that a theme in that book as well? Like how how to live in this world in a conscious way without being too overwhelmed by it? It wasn't as much a theme, given that it was 33 years ago or 34 mm-hmm. years ago that I uh, did those interviews, um, yeah, 34 years ago. So it wasn't as burning. I mean, it was there for me. It was. I did feel we were in trouble, uh, mm-hmm. planet. But I didn't know, certainly, as much then as I now know in seeing these these decades of destruction, really. So, yeah, it wasn't as much. Well, I know we want to talk to you about some of what you learned in that and what you talk about in your TED talk, but I want to give Brian a chance. He's, uh, he has a lot of questions. Well, sure I do. But while we're on that subject, we might as well stick with it because I remember once that you said that one of your recurring passions in life was how to answer the question, how do we stay sane in this crazy world? And in your TED talk, you actually list a whole bunch of really practical things like finding your community and creating one and, finding your calm and so for so for people you know who may have missed that ted talk for our audience what are what what, what advice how do we stay sane in this crazy world <laughs> one of the one of the things that i need to practice a lot and 
I hope I get better at it, is not um, projecting visions of the future in my head. Because I, it's quite easy, I think, for any of us to look at what's happening and then imagine an extrapolation that gets worse from where we are now. And so it's, it's a kind of um, training to not do that and to allow for other possibilities, right, that might deviate from the course we're on. So that is one part that I employ to stay sane is to mm -hmm. just stop projecting. You know, there's a way in which you can't just ignore your own what ifs, but to really keep it in check, to really not indulge it. So that's that's part of what I said is don't indulge dark visions of the future. Don't indulge them. If they arise, okay, they arise and float by and and fair enough. But um, but there is a way in which, yeah, it takes some discipline to not just keep, you know, spooking yourself, like I'm saying right. in Buddhist circles, painting a tiger on the wall and becoming afraid of it. Mm-hmm. You know, it reminds me, Catherine, I was listening to an interview with Ann Wilson of the rock group Heart, mm -hmm. and she said something that really affected me. She, um, they were asking, what was the impetus for the uh, song that she wrote called Crazy on You? Love that. Said, yeah, it's a great song. And she said, well, back in 1972, we were pretty sure that the world was coming to an end. <laughs> and so this was about, you know, uh, I'm going crazy and... and uh, in our last moments before the world ends, you know, let's have a good time. And it struck me as like, oh, I guess in every time we always think the world's going to end. You know, uh, you know, I was watching Oppenheimer, that movie, and they thought the world's going to end then. And of course, you know, in 1968 with the assassinations, people thought the world was going to end. So we always are projecting that. And in reality, we have no idea how things are going to go. Right. Yes, that's true. We don't really know. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And I did leave that um, option open in my essay of, of not just assuming, but <laughs> the, um, the the data is definitely um, troubling. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There was a song a long time ago. I think it was from 1970 by Quicksilver. And it was mm -hmm. called What About Me? A fantastic song and it's really a long song which they used to play in the radio on the radio those days they used to play yeah. six songs but it's brilliant and you listen to it now and it's like wow it's so it's more true now than it even was then what yeah. about me quicksilver really you can find it on youtube wow i'm gonna have to put a link to both of those songs in our okay. show notes well, yeah. while you're doing that brian uh, my favorite song growing up when i was seven was eve of destruction by Mary barry mcguire <laughs> which was also about the end of the world. And, you know, uh, my parents thought it was a little bit weird that I was singing about the end of the world at age seven. Um, but that's something of the mind that we always are projecting onto the future, that things are probably going to get worse. Um, what gives you hope, Catherine? Or what, what is another strategy for people who are inundated with the amount of suffering that you would say, you know, you might consider this? I would say that part of what plagues people in our culture, that is Western privileged cultures, right, is that we've had an assumption of longevity 
pretty much our whole lives. We've grown up in certain types of expectations. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, we knew something can happen. You can have an accident and die, um, or you could get a sudden illness and die, and so on. But generally, we assumed longevity, Mm -hmm. which is unlike most people in history who grew up in in times when you could die so much more easily and and much more young so part of our our fear and and our you know frustration i'd say is that now we're confronted with well it may be not true that um i can just assume longevity and so it's a kind of it's a kind of shaking hands with that understanding of okay this is how it has been for for most people in time and how it is still for a lot of people on the planet mm-hmm. it's leveling the playing field actually of we can't we can't just assume longevity anymore it's not wise to just assume it now, obviously it's not wise to assume it's not going to happen either but to really stay in a kind of unknown and that really throws you into seizing the day. I mean, really in it, totally experiencing gratitude for whatever time you get, just as how people had to do. And you really have an appreciation as you start to surrender to that understanding. You have an appreciation of how strong the human spirit has been, whereby people in the most difficult circumstances where they're struggling all the time for survival, and yet they keep going. And have to and, and 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 fall in love and have children and and make art and do all the things that we appreciate in a life. They did that with that sword of Damocles hanging over their heads. So yeah. if that's what's happening for us, so be it. That's that's <laughs> what we have to honor and 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 set aside our, you know at this point, perhaps unrealistic certainty about how much time lies ahead Mm -hmm. for each of us. Yes, and and, uh, you're talking about that reminds me of the title of your book, Passionate Presence, because that's really what you're advocating. I mean, having gratitude and fully experiencing right now instead of projecting this future thing, good or bad. And and I love the title of that book because it, it suggests that that presence is, even though its 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 nature is peace, it can hold the passionate involvement in life. That the two are not contradictory. Yes, exactly. That was why I very deliberately wanted that word in front of the word presence. <laughs> right. Not just a sort of sleepy, detached presence, you know. Right. Just- not just a kind of existing in time presence. It's it's a more engaged, a more more wakeful. Yes, I've come across a lot of people who say they have had a spiritual awakening, but then they hit what I, I guess I'd call a dry spell, where it's they say nothing interests them, mm-hmm. and um, it seems like they're not really in full embodiment of their of their humanness. And yeah. so I, I assume that humanness isn't something we need to transcend. Have you uh, run across people who have told you that? Well, yes, or that I've sensed, I have sensed that their perspective is a kind of misunderstanding of 
the Dharma in that, you know, a lot of these concepts can be used as escapism, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. People can have a sense of just a kind of withdrawing from involvement. And I think a lot of traditions have actually been um, rife with that. A kind of, you know, here's here's a way. I mean, a lot of people say that, you know, the times that some of our traditions occurred in is when they when they um, were founded were hard times. So there was a, a great um, escapism embedded in the in the in the story, sort of like not this world, but the other world, right? Mm-hmm. And the other world of interiority, or in some cases, the other world of heaven or some kind of paradise, but not quite this one, right? Mm-hmm. In in the idea of passionate presence, which I love that title as well, what do you see as the passionate, or where, or where does one direct the passion? Uh, it looks like from the little I've known about your work that it's often in a uh, activism area is that how it always is manifests or might it manifest in other ways as well well you know the the thread the principle that threaded through almost all the interviews i ever did with the people who i admired in this field of activism empathic activism was that that doing actually moved from or flowed from beingness Mm, right mm -hmm. You first have your own house a bit in order, not perfect, <laughs> but just, you know, that you have, you're moving from a kind of calm, a kind of quiet, a kind of clarity of heart purpose. And that comes with being immersed in, in a Dharma uh, perspective or understanding or um, immersion. And then what flows from that has the fragrance of that so that even if you're doing something simple in terms of activism, whatever that may be, whether it's on a large scale or just within your own community or within your own family and circle of friends, it's informed by that and it spreads that way. And so, mm-hmm. you know, that's that was always very interesting to me is that, like I said, it, once one has a sense of, okay, I'm figuring out more and more how to be calm myself, how to challenge my misperceptions, you know, to see hidden motivations in my own agendas and really see if I can overcome those in my actions. I've made that experiment in my own life a lot. And I know that when I'm off kilter, the fruits of my actions are not those that I'm very happy with. <laughs> so I try to kind of, you know, part of why it matters to me to to keep the keep the frequency very, very clear. It's not just for my own benefit. It's also mm-hmm. it it affects those in my life. Yeah, you know, that and reminds I, oh, sorry, go ahead, continue. I was going to say, I hope that answered that question. It was, it was a bit of, I went on, on a round, roundabout way to answer it. <laughs> it, was, it was very helpful. Yeah, I thought it was a great answer. And it put me in mind of a, there's a section of your book, Passionate Presence, called A Contagion of Joy. Mm-hmm. And and that in turn reminded me of something that Rupert, Rupert Spira 
quoted the Sufi teacher Irene Tweedy as saying to a friend of his, come and stay with me and I'll infect you with my happiness. Oh, beautiful. That's gorgeous. Yes. What a and, great, what a great invitation. <laughs> right, right. And when you talked about putting your own house in order, that's what reminded me of it. I mean, when we, when we find the happiness within, in fact, that's, I think, I mean, in my opinion, it's our default state and just all the thoughts about the future and stuff get in the way of it. But when we connect with that, we can't help but, but spread it. Absolutely. Yeah. And as I point out in the book, it's also helpful to even just bump your light a little higher when you're in the company of others for anyone who might be feeling a little low, you know, to just sort of mm -hmm. just let it blaze a little tiny bit brighter than it might have to when you're just on your own and just peaceful, you know. Yeah, well, that's so opposite from what most people do when they are with people who are down or suffering or unhappy. They usually try to find some practical solution to their problem. Mm -hmm. But this is not that. This is just being open with it. Yes, absolutely. And yes. And modeling a, a place of okayness and even delight, not in a Pollyannish way, because that just gets annoying. If somebody's depressed and you're just trying to, you know, be on kind of superficial happy talk, <laughs> they don't want to hear it. I never wanted to hear it when I was depressed. <laughs> but to just be with someone who you can sense a lightness in their being right? A spring in their step, a lightness in their being, someone who you sense is also paying attention. They're not oblivious to the problems, right? So that was another great training for me in, uh, in observing so many people who were dealing with massive problems, you know, tragedies, like somebody like the Dalai Lama or Desmond mm -hmm. Tutu or any, any, any number of the people I've interviewed over the years, who were a witness to horrific things and yet who maintained a steadiness and even a joyfulness. That's an incredible transmission to experience and one that I have wanted to em emulate despite my rather deep dive into the darkest of the news uh, on the planet, you know, been just a news junkie for many decades and uh, and mostly it's the bad news that is called the news. <laughs> so, you know. <laughs> right. Yeah, they, you never see a headline, uh, 300 million people were not murdered today in the United right. States. You know? Exactly right. Or, <laughs> yeah. or the whole community turned out to bring food to the person in the hospital. Or, you know, right, right, exactly. <laughs> but when they do, and every once in a while, when there is a story like that, it's so moving to hear people coming together and just helping each other, just being there for each other. True. I think local news does that more often. National news is is really does focus on what's wrong and what with everything. Yeah. I was um you know, I was living in Australia as I said the last seven years and in uh twenty two we had these massive floods. You may have heard about two years prior, we had these massive fires, <laughs> which were also devastating. But two years later, we had these floods. And my particular area was hit some of the worst of the floods in Australia. And 25 homes in a relatively small population of, of 
people, 25 homes were completely swept away, were flooded and gone. And then the floods also affected so many other homes. You know, they, people had to evacuate. So the whole entire region was in, and we had no internet for days on end. So the whole the whole region was just in trauma, but the community turned out so beautifully. God, it was just incredible. And there was a kind of, there was so much love and kindness and generosity. I mean, there were the, the centers where people were bringing food and, you know, um, clothing and everything needed um, were over, they were overwhelmed with donations such that they had to stop taking them in, you know, take, they couldn't accept any more donations because it was just more than anyone needed actually. So it was, it was really incredible to see and such a, an homage to the human heart, you know, yeah, that's beautiful. There's a, a line in a movie I like called Starman, which is about an alien uh, coming to Earth. And uh, a journalist is asking him, what have you learned about human beings? And he says, uh, people are at their best when times are the worst. Mm-hmm. And um makes me think that, you know, we're kind of, it looks like things are kind of hard nowadays for a lot of people and might be getting worse and that that might trigger that that deeper human connection um this last winter uh my wife and i didn't have power for 13 days mm-hmm. uh and it snowed about six feet and and i i had never met our neighbors because they're literally a quarter mile away and um, we need to know our neighbors basically for survival. Yes, and for survival. Uh, they were very kind and we all chipped in and it was a, ended up being a really great experience, although we were freezing cold for a lot of it. Um, but sometimes when times are hard is when we really go deep within and, and realize our common humanity. Yeah, so that's I mean, a silver lining. It is the silver lining. It's <clears throat> something we've heard over, over t- the last... Well, in my lifetime, I, I've heard this in many different contexts. People in war um, times, the the intensity of community that they experienced, like sometimes they even have a, like a nostalgic missing of that time, mm-hmm. despite the fact that it was war. That's um, true. I, I I think my my I remember people saying, including my father, who was in World War II, that he almost never felt more alive. Than, than and felt more comradeship with his with his yes. buddies and, and that that yeah. was quite special. Long ago, there was an Esquire article, a cover story, and it was Why Men Love War. And it, mm-hmm. it, it's a long time ago, and I haven't seen it since, so maybe it's somewhere online, but it so gave me an understanding of exactly what you just said. Um, a lot of men who were in war together, first of all, they were so present and so alive. And the the bonding, the camaraderie, which was pure survival with each other, right? Um, where you really had to have each other's backs to just get through the day, created friendships that were different from the rest of their lives. And And a lot of those men described how even in their dreams, 40 years later, Hmm. They're with those people. They're with. They're in context of some situation, you know, in 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 uh, in the dream, 
where they're with their their bodies from then. Um, so yeah, I can I can really understand how that would be the case. Yeah, despite it being like what we would most assume, most of us would assume one of the worst possible situations one could be in is on a battlefield. Mm-hmm. Now, I know you do these Dharma dialogues. What do you see as the purpose of them uh, in in your work with people that you work with? Mm-hmm. They're basically hangouts in Dharma um, to really just be together, just as we're doing right now, on a certain channel, right? Mm-hmm. I sometimes call it the silent channel, although we're using words, but just on a channel of being really simple. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm having less and less interest in any philosophy <laughs> or any kind of description of consciousness or any of those things. And I have a great interest in just the meetings of the heart. And, you know, we make these noises with our mouths, but really it, in a in a kind of, like I said, a hangout in beingness, really what's happening is there's a feeling of connection mm. and of course just as we were talking about just now about wartime possibilities we can have that without having to be on a battlefield and to have a feeling of you know being with your tribe yeah definitely had that experience in 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 your dharma dialogues but i'm wondering how how you bring that about because there could be a group of people listening to a lecturer talk about something and that may not happen uh so is it i mean do you help people direct their attention inward or how do you, how do you bring about that good question i mean i don't I, I don't ever really have the sense that i am bringing it about but that i'm providing um a context in which that's the that's the organizing principle of why we're in the room together or why we're on zoom together is that it's almost like there's a, a like a what's what's the word I want? Like a preloaded, <laughs> a preloaded <laughs> intentionality that would even get you into a room like that, right? That's there's a homesickness. Let's say it that way. There's a homesickness that yearns for a certain frequency, whereby you can just be, and it might be something that. Well, I think it's something that almost everyone has had glimpses of, whether it's, you know, watching the birth of a baby or a puppy or the death of a loved one or standing on a mountaintop and it's, you know, it's a spectacular one-off sunset and just those moments where sometimes people get there through plant medicine or, or, or silent retreats or, you know, various ways that we have been yearning, you know, the humans have yearned for this forever I am, I kind of marvel at the fact that it's fairly simple to access, but a lot of times people go through a lot of hoopla to try to access it. (laughs) And it's, that can be actually, you know, not even that effective. Um, I like to provide a context in which it is so simple and that there's just no frills that is just really something that is so familiar to you that you just fall into it. And that is the invitation uh, of the sessions that that I lead. Mm-hmm. It's it's very um, very secular. In fact, you know, I don't really have any belief system that's 
being uh, purported. I'm, I try to make it, I try to speak a language of the heart, and it gives permission to others to speak that language, which we all have. So it te- I, 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 I'm grateful over the years that the people who tend to come to my sessions, they do speak much more in kind of plain English. You know, it's not, it's not loaded with philosophical concepts because they quickly see that's not that's not the language we're speaking. Do you or well, do you ever recommend that people do certain practices, whether it be meditation or any? Uh, obviously, the Dharma dialogues are, is a certain practice. I'm wondering if there are others that people might do in their daily life. Well, I lead silent retreats, and I and I I lead them, but I also attend them because it's I, I always assume that I'm in attendance at the retreat as well. I find that silent time, like just time out of time, silent immersions are an incredible reset of the mind program and of the heart program and a clarification of things that are that are clouded or that need to be seen or or uh, kind of a you know just a, an understanding uh, finding ways that are much more simple to execute in your life right it's just much more efficient you could say mm-hmm. uh, like you just get rid of a lot of dross when you sit in silence for a few days even um and and then the longer you sit, there's more layers of dross that get seen. So it's not about sitting per se. I shouldn't have said it really that way. It's it's because there isn't a lot of sitting at my retreats. There's some, but not much at all. There's two sessions of Dharma Dialogues that kind of keep people on track. And again, that's a shared experience. It's not me telling them how to be. It's that we're mm-hmm. in a room together and that the, os- the osmosis of that is powerful. But we also have a few half-hour sittings, two or three in the day, and that's it. And and then we have some walking together, walking in silence. But the rest of the time, people are on their own, reading or wandering about or, you know, depending on the facility. Um, and and it's astonishing how effective that is in getting people to a state of joy, even sometimes people who come in deep grief, having just lost someone. Mm-hmm or an animal or whatever, you know, that it's incredible how joy becomes accessible, not through an imposition of telling people to be joyous, but because it, it just erupts, you know. So maybe my question about bringing something about is actually the wrong way to put it. It, it's, it almost sounds like dropping effort. That is. It. And the healing almost you know, happens by itself in that silence. Absolutely. It, it becomes inevitable. Yeah. And, and, and you then see the, the misguided uh, thrust of effort. You see that that is actually an obscuration. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. You uh, do... A fair amount of effort, though, in terms of your activism. So I'm wondering how you you are able to do that so consistently in a way that um, does not lead you astray. 
Well, I have in the past, uh, of course, been on a number of boards and have been involved in various, you know, actions and so on. Um, of late, I haven't so much, but um, I've been moving, actually, you know, I've had a lot of I've moved. I've had several big moves in the last year and a half. But what I would say is that I always have been attracted by love. Like if something, if something lights my heart and my spirit, that's what attracts me. Mm-hmm. So, and I have tremendous energy for, for that activity. I don't do it out of uh, a should, or if I, you know, I see some circumstance that's terrible and I want to try to address it or so on. I mean, I'm so grateful for people who do that and that, and that may be their motivation. Their, their motivation may be purely from wanting to right a wrong or, or to make just something that is unjust if they can. And I, I love that. And there would be certain circumstances that I would get very energized um, in that way. But usually it's out of love. Um, like, I really love animals. Mm-hmm. Um And, uh, you know, a few years back, probably a decade ago, actually, these friends of mine put together this animal rights organization. And so I was on that board for a while, long time, and not now. Um, And previous times I was on Tibetan human rights boards and Burmese human rights boards, all because I loved those cultures. And so one of the things I've seen with the people I've interviewed is that they also started from love of their own people, usually of of their people like Cesar Chavez. Do you know who that was? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Founder of the farm workers uh, union and movement in California long ago. Um, And who really was a great Gandhian um, student of Gandhian philosophy, nonviolent strategies and went on many fasts to, put forth his the cause of his people, his co-workers, and and so many fast and long fast. I think that's that's what killed him uh, in the end. He he had kidney failure, I think it was. But in any case, the way that started was that he saw the unjust the injustice occurring to the farm workers, of which he was one, and people started going to his house and to his very humble kitchen table, which I sat at and interviewed him at many years later when he could have probably gotten donations to live in a much more kind of glam way, but he didn't. And, you know, there they would sit and talk about their stories of being oppressed or beaten or cheated or whatever, or, you know, or sent back to wherever they came from, et cetera. Um, and the long, horrible hours, the working conditions, et cetera. So that all moved from love, love of his people. And he mm-hmm. started standing up and organizing and, and, this this we I mean this is the oldest story in the book of how people end up as uh, as activists so called it's really you know just as if you had a kid who had a particular illness you would become an activist not because you think I'm an activist right it's that you would find out everything you could about that illness and ways to address it you would move into action out of love. An action born of love. Yeah. yeah. And I suppose part of that love harkens back to something you said earlier about not dwelling on the horrible images of the future, but that I think you really need to be able to envision 
what it would be if if it turned out well what would it be if if with the success of activism what would that be like i mean i think activists probably need to hold the positive in their hearts yes. and not just oh this is bad yes that's great yeah i agree absolutely um i mean i think that that's a way that a lot of people have success in whatever field they're in is that they're sort of seeing an, a possible outcome that is bright and shiny. But I love that you've applied it to activism, which is, um, uh, you know, the primary motive is helping others or helping oneself and others. Mm -hmm. I was talking, uh, I don't know if you know who Rick Doblin is. He's created an organization studying psychedelics, and he's been at it for 40 years and he even got his doctoral dissertation at Harvard about how to get drugs legally through the FDA process. I, I was asking him, how did you, you stay consistent with this for 40 years? And he said, yeah, I loved, I loved the medicine, MDMA, and I thought other people could benefit. And, and what's more important than doing something that brings more love into the world? Right, yeah. He was motivated by his own love. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I would be remiss if I didn't mention something else that uh, you and Jonathan have in common, Catherine, which was Papaji, meeting H.W.L. Punja, the uh, the Indian teacher um, Jonathan had experienced there. And you wrote about it, ex uh, you know, extensively in, in Passionate Presence. And it really, uh, you know, sounds like it completely changed your life. So I was wondering if you still don't mind after, you know, talking about Papaji after all these years. Yeah. Well, of course, um, yeah, um, he, his presence in my life was an interruption of a certain trajectory in which I thought effort, as you had pointed out before, as I thought effort was required to, you know, make my mind not crazy. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, uh, and I had put in a lot of effort by that point, 17 years of mindfulness practice in Buddhist tradition. And um, I wouldn't say I was worse than I had started out, but it wasn't a whole lot different. I'd gotten a little bit of, you know, of relief from the madness of mind. But with him, what was so freeing was that his his understanding and teaching just bypassed the whole project of the mind and landed you in this effortless place, in this effortless awareness, in this not messing with the mind. He once said, let the thoughts come through, tear down the doors, tear down the walls, let them breeze through, no big deal, you don't have to do anything with them. And that was so great, because then you really, you didn't have to make them nicer right? You didn't have to make anything about your conditioning or your story or the narrative that you're telling in your head or anything. It didn't have to change one iota. And that defangs its power, right? It, you're not locked into this program, the me project of having to get, you know, make me better. And then, you know, you're home free in a sense, you know, you just let it, let it roll. You know, it's, it's of no consequence. It has no power then. So that was, that was incredibly thrilling to experience and to be in his company, which was so the, the 
transmission of it, as Jonathan can probably attest, was very strong, stronger than I had ever seen in a teacher. And and he it was all fully extemporaneous. He was not teaching from a program, a book, a, a teaching even. You know, it was coming through unfiltered in the now. And so that was powerful. But let me also say, because I want to be specific about something, that was, as with any of our lives, we go along in certain times and 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 certain experiences of life or understandings happen in those particular moments of time. But we still go further in understanding as we go. So I'd like to honor um, Leonard Cohen in this context because he it was only posthumously that I realized that he had been one of my great teachers and probably my primary mentor. Mm. Um, so why that's true for me is his, well, I, I mean, Punjaji was extraordinary, but he was an Indian man. He was, you know, um, of a very different generation and time and place Whereas Leonard was much more close to my own generation and my own conditioning and time and place. And so his language of the heart was one that I was more familiar with in a way. And also the way that art came through him and that words and, and uh, understandings came through him were just were such a celebration in my own, in my own being. So being around him for those last 25 years of his life, and 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 by the way, with Punjaji, I was only around him altogether a few months, but I was mm. Leonard a long, long time uh, as a friend. And and so I have been just, you know, it deepens in me as we go. Um, how many times I think of words either that he said to me or that he wrote or sang. I mean, uh, Tom, even as you were speaking um, just a little while ago about the way that we, we in a sense, aren't really fully here, that we're, we're in some projection about the future, whether good or bad, or that we're, as Leonard said, waiting for the miracle to come, right? We're waiting for the miracle to come. Like, it's such a brilliant understanding of a lot of what we talk about, um, the full stanzas baby, I've been waiting. I've been waiting night and day. I didn't see the time and I waited half my life away. There were lots of invitations and I know you sent me some, but I was waiting for the miracle, the miracle to come. You know, so that was like, there was so much, so much richness in his expression, in his being, in how he was as a person, like I've known a lot of famous people by chance and he wore it really well because he really was authentic and humble. And even around people who had no idea who he was, like the waitress or the waiter who was young and he's just this old guy, you know, um, even there, like the, just the sweetness of his meeting human to human self unto self 
And it would always enchant these young people. I would notice that they would think, God, he's an interesting old guy, you know. Um, uh-huh. Anyway, um, I, I diverted a soft conversation, I think. But um, Well, I'm it, so glad you did. Actually, that was going to be my next question after oh, Papaji was Leonard Cohen. <laughs> oh, and there you go. <laughs> so it was perfect. And as a matter of fact, I, I think that there's a way to tie them together. I know that that you know, you have a section of passionate presence called waiting for the miracle. And, you know, you, people think enlightenment is this event that's going to happen in the future. Right. And also in, in your book, you also talk about Ramana Maharshi's awakening. Ramana Maharshi was a Punjan's teacher, Papaji's teacher. And um, when he he first awakened as a teenage boy, he was, um, and uh, let's see, I actually have a quote from your book. It says, overcome with the fear of death and stricken with fear, he lay down and allowed his awareness to examine what exactly it was that would die and what could possibly remain. Now, I've heard that story many, many times, but it wasn't. And I just reread your book in preparation for this. And for the first time, I, I realized that he was not, he did not lie down and say, how can I become enlightened? No. It was a burning question of curiosity. Yes. And, and, and it was in that moment. And so I think that this, that the whole idea of waiting for the miracle and instead looking inside and asking a burning question about your real experience right now are somehow connected. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Um, And that burning question, of course, being one of the most fundamental questions of life, this, this, you know, that we're facing death, (laughs) right? And that it's, it's just hanging around in awareness for many people, and maybe some are better at denying it. But I think a lot of our actions and a lot of people's actions in life are um, this kind of running as fast as they can to not look at that. So for a teenage boy at the age of 16 to say, you know, I I am going to die and I need to look at this, right? I need to ask myself, right, what what is going to die and what would remain and and when you ask that question, it's very, very interesting. If you ask it from a deep enough place, it's not that something of you perhaps re- remains. I think it's that one's identification switches from this carcass that is going to die to that which is ever blooming, right? That not, not personally, not you, not some personal ever-blooming, but the greater blooming of this, you know, mystery that we're in. Um, And so I find that it's much more, um, it's just so freeing to start to identify with that. If you're going to identify with anything, right, start, you know, it's like Nisargadatta said, I am that, that. You know, and people misunderstand what that referred to. They want it to be personal. They want to anthropomorphize it, get this get out of jail free card where they never die. But it's not quite that. And and if one understands this other way of seeing, rather than identifying with this small creature, who we do have to take care of, and we can't just 
transcend the needs of the personal or transcend the psychology of the personal, but not to have the entire fixation of who you see yourself to be or what matters to be about this little personal creature who's here for a blink in time and will be easily forgotten quickly. <laughs> that's what, one another thing that's so amazing to me that we we're trying so hard to matter here and to, you know, and to be somebody and to, you know, have some sense of self that's great. Uh, but it's a poof, poof, <laughs> you know, it's just dust in the wind pretty soon. <laughs> and, um, and if one could also see that, it's very, very freeing. And then also to put your attention on the bigger picture, you know, that we, something's just blown into existence, maybe endlessly, um, which seems the most logical to me, but I think logic doesn't apply in these kinds of conversations. But anyway, that we at least have, somehow come into existence that we can see uh, and that it's such a mystery and that why not kind of be more connected to the mystery right yeah rather than try and get answers to allow ourselves to just be in the mystery and relax into it yes yeah exactly right mm -hmm. Is there idea. any um, last things you want to say to our listeners, Catherine, that we haven't covered? Um, well, we've covered a lot. <laughs> um, I think I'll speak as if I'm speaking just to myself, which is to double down on gratitude and loving thoughts and kindness. During this short time that we have in this yeah. particular form. Yes, indeed. That's always a good, a good advice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> mm. And uh, I think, you know, when we're in our, our true heart, those are pretty much the, the main instructions. Mm. Any last thoughts, Brian? Well, I'm very grateful that we got to talk about all this stuff, including Papaji and Leonard Cohen. I remember I used to often go to, to meetings uh, that Stuart Schwartz would give, and sometimes as his guided meditation, he would play Back on Boogie Street, for example. Oh, that's a great song. That's a brilliant song. Uh, when you listen to the words of that, that's incredible. Yeah. yeah. So I'm I just, I, 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 I could ask you, I mean, we could go on for a couple more hours, I'm sure, oh. but, but uh, I've enjoyed uh, talking to you so much. I'm very grateful that you could come on and share this with our listeners. I'm delighted with this conversation. It's wonderful, and I really appreciate that it was very grounded and that we didn't have to go into the stratosphere. <laughs> Good. <laughs> oh, well, How very... can people find out more about your work, Catherine? CatherineIngram.com. That's easy. Right now, I don't have a lot going on. I, I, I've just been in motion, as I said. But um, usually, I have, I have podcasts, you know, that are well. I have two hundred some podcasts on the podcast channels, all the various ones, and uh, mm -hmm. um, and I often have retreats and Zoom sessions and stuff. But the retreats and Zoom sessions are a bit on pause because I'm I'm far flung from um, 
any kind of home base. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm glad you've been able to bring the joy and the calm into your whirlwind life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I've definitely relied on the Dharma a lot lately. <laughs> it comes in handy, doesn't it? <laughs> it does come in handy. <laughs> and it's always there. It's so reliable. Yes, yes, it is. Yeah. That's yeah. one of the great teachings of Papaji is that you don't have to meditate for years or purify for years. Mm. Who you are is peace and awareness. And, and the here uh, it's always there. Once said, after 30 years of practice, you'll only have now. <laughs> <laughs> I like you that. You'll have now, now. <laughs> I like that. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank well, you. And um, it's been thank a great you. pleasure. And, and uh, we always like to say to our listeners, uh, keep exploring. Keep exploring. Thank you for listening to Awareness Explorers. To learn more, you can check out our website at awarenessexplorers.com. Please subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app. We'd love it if you would post a review. And please share our link on Facebook and with family and friends. Because knowing yourself as awareness is the greatest gift you can give yourself or someone you love. After 30 years of practice, you'll only have now.